You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Welcome to Christ Church Toronto. I'm glad that you've joined us. We're going to continue our sermon series in Titus chapter 1. We're really going to look only at verse 9 this morning, but I'm going to read to you Titus 1 verses 5 through 9. And again, we'll be spending most of our time this morning on Titus 1 verse 9. But hear God's word. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, as we now look at this, your word, would you use this, your word, to instruct us, even through my words? Would you use it to rebuke us where necessary? Father, would you make yourself presence, present by your spirit in such a way through your word that we would all know we met with you this morning? We ask this in the name of Jesus, our faithful Savior. Amen. Well, that's just your opinion. Who among us hasn't heard this phrase used? And if we're honest, who among us hasn't used this phrase from time to time? The more you have a particular expertise or authority in a particular field or discipline, the more likely you are to hear that phrase when you have made your argument definitively and when there is no way for the person you're arguing with to back out. That's simply your opinion. You see it all day long, and oh my goodness, as our culture rages on debates around COVID-19 and vaccines, as people lose trust in the medical establishment, this is the go-to argument when there is nothing left. Well, that is just your opinion. And unfortunately, that concluding our, that concluding statement, well, it's just your opinion, is accepted as a signal to end all debate, but should it be? It seems as though this kind of statement is, in one sense, an acknowledgement that somebody has lost the debate, but in another sense, it is a doubling down in stubbornness on the part of the person who says it often, and saying that their opinion really is all that matters, and they're not going to be convinced any other way. These kind of statements are creating for us a world in which we are tasting and experiencing exhausting chaos. Listen, Paul spent a little time in this island of Crete. He at least crosses through it at some point. He sees that the place is a mess. The church people there had heard the good news of Jesus Christ maybe some 30 years ago at the sermon at Pentecost, but as they came back to the island and tried to live as Christians, the place was a disordered mess. There were too many people, too many opinions. 
They professed to know God, as Paul will say later, but they denied him by their very works. And Paul has to send one of his protégés, his co-worker, his student in the faith, Titus, a Greek man who had converted under Paul's ministry to the island of Crete, and he says, put what you find there into order. And in many ways, we in North America are facing similar situations today with a church that feels in disorder. Everyone is a slave to their own opinion, and there is no order but only chaos. And if chaos is to be brought If this chaos is to be brought into order, even in our world today, Paul is telling us there's something that we need in our lives, and they're called elders. Last week, Lyndon did a great job of looking at the ways in which Paul says, you need to appoint elders in every town, that this is an important part of what it means for the church to grow. But in this particular passage, in the face of the chaos that exists in Crete, in the face of the chaos that exists into our world, how are we going to bring the chaos into order? Paul is going to tell us, yes, we need elders, but he's going to tell us why we need elders in the face of the chaos and what elders do in the face of the chaos. So first, why do we need elders? Again, last week, Lyndon did a wonderful job of, of showing that in the face of the reign of chaos in a particular culture, churches need elders. And last week, Paul was wrestling through this question, and Lyndon preached a great sermon on the ways in which uh, we, the type of people we are to look to to be elders in our church. Who is good for the job? And Paul listed out qualifications of the elders' home life and character, But in this passage, in verse 9, actually, Paul's going to move to the why question. Why do we need elders? And as he gives this final qualification for elders, he's going to say that elders must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they may be able to give instruction on sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Why does the church in Crete need elders? Why does Christ Church Toronto need elders? In verse 7, Paul calls them messenger, uh, managers or stewards. Why do we need managers or stewards in our church? It's not about making strategic decisions about the future path of our church, about buildings, about strategies, about events, about staff. All those things have their place. We need elders because we need a publicly identified body who is fiercely attached to the Word of God as is taught. We don't necessarily need the most diligent students of the word to be elders. There's all kinds of people doing PhDs who ought never to be elders in churches. In fact, there are many demons who would know God's word better than anyone who would stand before elder. We are to publicly identify people who have properly heard the good news of Jesus, received the good news of Jesus, and their life and their profession lines up with what has been taught to them. Now, this seems dangerous. Why do we need these kinds of managers in our lives? Why add a layer of middle management? Why can't we just be a people committed to God's Word, every person with their own Bible? Why do we need a layer of middle management? Can't God impose upon us spiritual experiences which will keep us on the straight and narrow, which will keep us maturing, which will reign in the chaos? Isn't the Bible enough? Well, it's almost as though God understands that the church is going to have to have a public witness and, uh, well, that's just your opinion kind of culture. He builds into the church's system 
a group of people who profess the faith in line with that which they received, who aren't just making up their own opinions about what they think the Bible is teaching, but they're saying that they hold to the Bible the same way they've seen others hold to the Bible. And built into the system, one is never alone. Elders, plural, are to be appointed in every town. They're to come together. There's to be a consensus and agreement. This is the community of faith in a that's-just-your-opinion world. It shouldn't surprise us that the church almost immediately took these kinds of qualifications for elders and understood this to be part of their task as a church. And they began to codify and write out summary statements of what it meant to hold to the faithful word. We learn about the rule of faith, the didache, the Apostles' Creed, which we'll recite together in a couple of minutes, the Nicene Creed, We learned about the 39 articles. The church was called not just to recreate the wheel, but to take what they received, to put diligent work into asking themselves, how does it relate to our particular culture? To quote Dirty Harry, the church was to know that every man is to know his limits. No man, no woman is an island. The church is called to take what they have received to faithfully live it out in a new culture with new questions and pass something on to the generation that is to come. This is why our particular elders spent almost a year reading through and learning about the Westminster Confession of Faith, asking themselves, does their personal faith line up with what they're reading in this document? It's not a call to be lazy and to say, we've got everything figured out. No, it's a call to say, here's what's been passed on to us faithfully hold on to these words, bear this tradition that there might be more who faithfully hold on to these words in the days that come in the face of new challenges that are in our way. You see, this qualification is a great warning to us. It answers this question, why do we need elders? We need elders because we need people who are publicly identified as faithfully holding on to this word. But we need to acknowledge that we live in a world and we have a mindset in which our opinion is just far too important in our own eyes. Just having the Bible and just having your opinion won't bring order to the chaos. And our God is constantly bringing order out of chaos. Being fiercely, fiercely attached to the word as taught, this is how the, or, the disorder will be brought to order. This is how the chaos will be reigned in. The church is not to find people who invent their own approach to following Jesus, not to find a group of people who demand everyone uh, submit to their preferences and to create churches that reflect their preferences, but they are to hold strong to the trustworthy message that saved their soul. That is to shape their identity and that is there to conform all their life to it. And they're to come together as stewards of this good news message as it has been passed on to them. This has got to be the priority of all believers in Christ. And it's the duty of the church to identify those who are faithfully holding on to the word and elevate them to this position, publicly identify them, ordain them, install them as elders, overseers, stewards over the church. Is this your priority? to have a settled dedication to the good news of Jesus as it has been taught to you, to see that it works into your life and transforms you more and more into the image of Christ. You see, this is why the church in Crete needed elders. This is why our church needs elders. Disorder comes. 
The Bible is absolutely sufficient to bring salvation to you, but disorder comes when it's just you and your opinions in the Bible. And when disorder comes, doubts creep into our minds. Our public witness is harmed. And a counter-cultural community in a that's-just-your-opinion culture is a community that lays hold of God's Word, understands it as it has been passed on to us, and has their identity deeply, deeply rooted, has a settled dedication to the faithful Word. This is why elders are needed. But now let's ask, what do elders do? And they're given two tasks in this passage, but they're kind of two sides of the same coin. They're to give instruction and sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, to our culture, this idea of inviting someone into your life to instruct you is socially acceptable if this person has some sort of expertise. But the idea of having someone in your life who might rebuke you is something that is certainly ripe for abuse. What is Paul saying? Well, again, he's not giving a blanket statement that elders are called to rebuke people for those things that they're doing that the elders don't like. That's not at all what what Paul is inviting the elders to do. They're not told that they're to instruct the congregation as to how to vote. They're not told that they're instruct the congregation as to what type of investments to have, whether cryptocurrency is a good use of your resources. Look, there's some wisdom in those things, and Christians will have to wrestle with those things, but there are certain limits to their particular authority and their teaching and their rebuking. They're to encourage godliness from sound doctrine. They are to discuss all these other things that might be necessary for people to wrestle through as they think about following Christ, but it's rooted in sound doctrine. They're to encourage godliness. They're to use sound doctrine to make mature followers of Jesus. Essentially, what do, what do elders do? They make disciples who are rooted in sound doctrine. Now, when you hear this calling, it's possible for your mind to go to one of two extremes. Probably most of your minds go to an extreme of, of the idea of an abuse of power. This thing going too far. Elders bullying and personalizing every conflict and micromanaging people's lives, getting into all of their business. This podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill from Christianity Today, is uh, becoming a, has a very wide listenership. Even non-Christians are listening to it, much to my surprise. And it just shows me how much people have a, a general skepticism of the institutional church. And this idea of inviting elders to rebuke you, my goodness, this just terrifies people. But remember, you're not inviting a rebuke generally. You, you are saying, I want my life to conform with the good news of Jesus Christ with sound doctrine. And if I find myself deviating, I would appreciate someone coming into my life and thoughtfully engaging with me on that topic. The elder's goal is not control of people's lives, but to see lives transformed by the gospel, to see godliness grow out of sound doctrine. We fear abuse of power for good reason, but my guess is very few of us fear elders who neglect their responsibility, who under-shepherd the congregation. Most elders hate confrontation, especially here in Canada. They much prefer personal comfort. They want to be liked by all parties. This is probably the default temptation of most elders you will come across in your life. We love to be loved. So what is this passage calling you to do? It's saying if you want to mature in godliness, if you want to grow in Christ, then invite this kind of shepherding care into your life. Hebrews 13.7 says elders will have to give an account for each and every one of the souls that is under their care. 
The goal of the elder is not to make friends, which is the temptation I am prone to do. I love to be friends with all the people in my congregation. But as an old pastor once told me, your congregants don't need friends. They can find those almost anywhere. They need overseers. They need elders. They need stewards. They need shepherds who will use the gospel to seek transformation in their lives. A couple years back, uh, one of the biggest churches in North America, Willow Creek Church, uh, outside of Chicago area, went through a big self-assessment, a big audit about what was going wrong in their church, why so many people were leaving or so dissatisfied. And the results of the audit were put into a book. They were wrestling through what is the future of this approach that they had had to church called the seeker-sensitive movement. And the results were that they needed to create Christians who would become more self-feeders. That the big problem was that not enough of their Christians were self-feeders and therefore they were dissatisfied in their walk with Christ. Now there is some wisdom to saying you need to be a self-feeding Christian in this world, but if I'm understanding what Paul is instructing Titus to do and what he expects elders from this point of his instruction to Titus on to do is, is that people not fool themselves. That they ought not be so arrogant and believe that they can be self-feeders. More often than not, like a little child, we are the type of beings who need to be fed by another. And so the question you should be asking yourself, if you're a sincere follower of Christ, who wants your life to line up beautifully with the way Christ wants your life to line up, you need to be asking yourself, how do I make the elders who oversee my life's duty one done with joy? If my maturity in God's kingdom is something that is going to come through others in my life, how do I put myself in a posture with an open invitation to invite that in? Listen, I'm preaching this sermon to you, but I am participating in this myself. There is no body in the kingdom of God who is not under somebody else's authority. I am learning now in this next phase of my responsibility of submitting to the three men that will be put forward as elders at our church. I will have to learn to sit under their rebukes and to hear their instruction. I will have to learn to position myself to not bully or dominate them, but to invite their wisdom into my life. The church is an institution like no other. Elders are called to bring about the beautiful work of seeing the gospel transform and bring in new creation into this world, even into your life. This passage is telling you that what we have before us as a church, as we are about to uh, potentially uh, receive and vote on three men as elders, is a great opportunity for us to grow and mature as a church. Now, as I bring this to a surprise, or as I bring this to a close, I want to remind you that it shouldn't be a surprise that God would choose to use the messy route, you know, that he would choose to finger paint over using very uh, fine brush techniques, that this is the way that God wants to see you mature and grow in godliness. This is the way God is ordained that you persevere to the end is by his spirit working through sinful and messy people, people who are attempting to follow Jesus and who are willing to say publicly, follow me as I follow Christ. This is messy work. It's work prone to error. It's risky. And this fact should never surprise you. Because as I said, our God, he seems to be more prone to being willing to paint with fingerprints than with a brush. 
He loves to use earthly, fleshy things to bring about his beautiful, glorious results. Rather than destroy his creation in our rebellion and in our attempt to sabotage his world, he came up with a plan with the Son to send his Son to this earth, to be involved in the Mass, to take on human flesh, to smell like us, to understand what it feels like to be embodied with us. He sent his Son to learn the doctrines of the faith, to learn the faithful word from his Father and his Father's fathers, to sit under teaching. And he used his Son to pass on teachings to people on this earth. And like a true elder, his son's life was characterized by consistently teaching and even rebuking when necessary those who stood in the path and in uh, in opposition to sound doctrine. But his son's words were messy. They were prone to being misunderstood, prone to being dismissed. His actions were confused, his faithful teaching ignored, his rebukes misinterpreted. Ultimately, it all resulted in him ending up on the cross. What looks like to us a glorious mess at this moment becomes the means by which God pours salvation into our world. In the midst of the mess, God was doing something beautiful. It looked like defeat, but it was the first declaration of victory. The disciples see the cross and respond in trauma, only to have that trauma transformed into understanding God's sincere and deep love for them, the way His kingdom is going to unfold and flourish on this earth. It shouldn't surprise us that a God who would be willing to use words, willing to send a son to take on human flesh with all its limitations, that he would be pleased to set up a system where fellow sinners who try to live by grace, who attempt to find their identity and purpose and meaning in what the, in belonging to Jesus, that this God will use elders, people who will make mistakes, you can count on it. People who will have to go back and reroute their identity in the cross monthly, weekly, even daily. That this God would take great delight in taking what appears to be risky and chaotic and making something stunningly beautiful out of it. Listen, this is the means in which God is going to preserve my faith. This is the means God is going to mature and grow me in the gospel as I learn to submit to elders. And this is exactly what he is going to do for you as well. God loves, loves to work in such a way that looks like a mess to us, but he's always doing something beautiful. We should thank him that he's bringing elders into our church. And we should look forward with hope as to what this might even mean for our personal lives. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at christchurchtoronto.ca or email us at info at christchurchtoronto.ca.